In the second episode of Anesthesiology News Presents, The Etherist, we discussed some of the main causes and signs of burnout. We also explored what it was like to work during the onset of the COVID-19 pandemic. In this installment, we first examine well-being during residency. Managing the cognitive workload and production pressure can be incredibly demanding, even for seasoned doctors. So without proper guidance and a strong foundation, the acute setting can easily lead to burnout for residents. We then speak with a European anesthesiologist about the cultural differences in the specialty. Just how much better might your life be if you didn't have to worry about electronic records and patient billing? But first, a word from our sponsor. Discover breakthrough technology with Massimo Rainbow Pulse Co-Oximetry, featuring SPHB non-invasive continuous hemoglobin monitoring and PVI, a non-invasive dynamic indicator of fluid responsiveness. The Rainbow Pulse Co-Oximetry platform is designed to help support blood and fluid management initiatives without additional equipment or setup. Visit Massimo.com to learn more. All right, my name is Basma Mohammed. I'm an attending anesthesiologist at the University of Florida. Um, I am also the assistant program director for Residence Wellness. Um, I took over this role in 2019, um, and since then I've been really very proactive in terms of residence wellness mainly, but in the last couple of years I've been also involved in activities in the department. So to my understanding, I feel like by the time you finish medical school and you start residency and you become a practicing anesthesiologist or practicing physician, nobody had taught you how to take care of yourself. <laughs> That's one key area. It's all about taking care of patients and how to take care of patients, how to take care of your colleagues, how to be a good team player. But over the years, you've never been taught of how to take good care of yourself in order to provide best care ever to the patients. And then with a lot of production pressures that are happening recently, there's a lot of increased pressures. Like you have to be fast, you have to be efficient, you have to do this. It's a lot of the have to, and there is like you might to, or would love to, or have joy in doing certain things. So that's one area that I believe there's a lot of, to me during my residency, I find it really difficult. Like I have this difficulty or I'm struggling that's like, I cannot share this with anyone because Otherwise, it will show a lot of weakness on my end. That's another thing with healthcare professionals in general and physicians in particular, is that they are so afraid of the stigma of talking about their weaknesses or struggles with others. And that's why I feel like there's a lot of opportunity to open up and talk about it and address it in a more open fashion. So let me give you an example, like my residency, for example, I'm not talking about anything negative. I actually trained at the UF, but in, in general, the general concepts that you go from one year to the next, one rotation to the next, this is how you're going to take care of patients. This is how you're going to do things. Um, nobody has the time to open up and say, it's like, well, I had a bad day. Can I talk to someone about it? Um, at least at that time when I was a resident, I didn't know about it. And also I didn't want to talk about it because there is that feel that if I talk about it or if I talk to different people, there might be a stigma that I'm really weak. I don't know what I'm doing. Actually, this stigma is completely false. It's not real. At least when I became faculty and I started hearing other people, how faculty can talk to each other and how I can reach out to my senior faculty to help me take care of a patient or things of that nature. It was still the culture overall in medicine in general. It is so hard to open up and say something like, 
I'm having difficulty studying your residency, or I'm having difficulty focusing at the end of a busy day, or I'm exceeding my work hours, I need to work on this a little bit. It's just an overall culture among physicians that I cannot really pinpoint where it came from or where it started. However, we try in our program to just completely oppose this idea of like, no, there are open channels for you to talk. There are open channels for you. If you don't feel safe to talk about the program, there are other venues in our institution to talk to other people. Since you've been in this space for some time now, what are your biggest takeaways? The biggest thing that I like to talk to residents about is the cognitive workload and the production pressure. The cognitive workload for the field of anesthesiology, you are taking care of patients in an acute setting, um, one of the highest acuity settings, even higher acuity than intensive care setting, um, that you need to be keeping an eye on that patient all the time. I've also finished residency in internal medicine and the acuity is not the same. I mean, the workload or the cognitive workload at the end of a busy day like this. And when I say busy for the residency, you're only taking care of one patient at a time. Imagine the attendings that are taking care of two patients or three patients at a time. It's a lot of workload for them uh, from a cognitive standpoint. So I do believe not understanding the amount of cognitive work that you do on a day-to-day -day basis can lead to burnout. The other thing is the production pressure sometimes leads to issues related to um, things like, okay, go see the next patient. If you like, you're in that motion, nonstop motion of seeing one patient to the next, you don't understand that this is a very important aspect of care for the patient themselves. But you, when you are in a motion of burnout, you can take care of them as, oh, that's another patient, it's just another case. Um, and we try to refrain completely from that, like just push on the reset button, get your own self and take care of each and every patient separately. All right, so my name is um, Barbara Orlando. I'm uh, the Chief of Obstetric Anesthesiology at McGovern Medical School, uh, University of Texas in Houston. I'm gonna just tell you a little bit of a personal story. I graduated, as you can tell by my French accent, I graduated in Europe. Um, I did a full residency there and I was working as an attending. And then for personal reason, we decided to move to United States. I took a, a break of eight years to take care of my kids and raise my children. And then I decided to go back to anesthesia medicine. And I we did another residency in the Bronx, the Montefiore Medical Center. And that was a real culture shock. The residency was extremely hard and very draining emotionally and physically. And this is from someone who was already trained and already had the knowledge. When I realized that, I, I was confronted to a really big uh, dilemma, which was the job I love was really taking a toll on me. And me being when I restarted my residency, I was in my 40s. So I had a lot more experience and maybe a lot more of a maturity when I approached that residency. And yet it was so tough that I, I was trying to imagine how it could be for younger people with maybe less of a mature view on the world in general. And I, I decided to really focus on that. 
not to mention that there's been more and more data um, that came out in the literature after that regarding suicide and how wellness and burnout affects a physician, which ultimately has a huge impact not only on the physicians themselves, but on the care they have for patients. Because if you're not well yourself, you can't take care correctly of patients. And our specialty is a very high acuity, fast response specialty where you really have to be focused and sharp at full time. You can't allow yourself to second guess yourself or be tired or be mentally mentally drained because it can have an impact on the way you're taking care of your patients. You just said how tough it was for you during your residency. Can you tell me a little bit more about it? Honestly, when I did my internship in surgery, um, the, the, the people I worked with were themselves, I've ha- already had themselves gone through a very tough training. And they were very poorly receptive to any kind of emotion and um, distress that you could um, that you could uh, formulate with them, which led to the fact that I wasn't even saying anything to my directors because I knew that it would have very little impact on them and no effect on how I would be treated anyway. But during that first year specifically, I remember coming home every single day and telling my husband, I can't do it anymore. I'm going to quit. I can't. It's too hard. People are very, very mean. They have absolutely no empathy and I I can't do it. And I remember my husband, thank, thank God for him, he's the one who helped me go through that internship day by day. I swear it was every day we had the same conversation. I was coming home crying. I was anxious. I was nervous. And I would say, I'm not going back tomorrow. And he would say, listen, just one more day and tomorrow we'll see. And I literally went through that internship training a day at a time, literally. And I was angry. I was very emotional all the time. I I had tremendous lack of sleep. So one day we were in the car and I was sleeping and I remember my husband Telling my kids, shh, don't make any noise. Mom is sleeping. She's tired. Don't make any noise. I have become that person that I really am not. I'm, I'm not like an angry, emotional person. I'm a very leveled, cool-headed person. But that training just took a, took a toll on me. It was really unexpected. And maybe it's because I was already in my 40s and I had kids. But I think actually that helped me go through in an easier way that if I didn't have the support system I had at home. That support system was really my heaven and my breath of fresh air when I was coming home. If I hadn't that, I don't know if I would have been able to go through it. How have you taken your experience and used it to help and educate the current residents? In our department, to avoid having residents being anxious or worried about expressing their feelings. We, we implemented also another initiative that was driven by Dr. Uh, Lisa Goldman, who is one of the co-authors of the article. She 
uh, organized confession. So those confessions were based on the Delphi principle where they were meeting as a group and the resident prior to the meeting would submit to an anonymous system uh, the, their different concerns. So it could go from anywhere from um, I felt sick to this week and I couldn't function correctly to I lost my patient and I'm really feeling, feeling emotionally drained and I don't know how to handle that. So there was a very large spectrum of concern from the resident. But the beauty of it is that they were putting those concerns prior to meetings in an anonymous system. And then on the day of the meeting, they would pull out all those different observations from residents and they would discuss them among them. There was no identification of who it was coming from. Everybody was free to intervene on those uh, specific points. And then they would suggest a way of handling those concerns. And it could be, uh, I didn't have a, uh, I had an appointment today, I couldn't go because I had no free days. That could be something very basic and very uh, practical, but that's still a concern. And it's still something that you have to be able to offer to your resident because they are human beings, they need to take care of them. So we had those different things that we, um, we were collecting and then we were collecting ideas from the resident on how to solve them. And then those ideas were brought up to the program director. There was absolutely no attending um, or leadership in those meetings. It was only resident-driven. Um, and then those, those ideas and concerns were brought up to the program director, leadership, myself, we were having meetings. And with the suggestion that were made with the resident, we would see how we could implement those things. And we were working, as I said, on implementing well-being days so we could have the residents have days where they could take their personal appointment to take care of themselves. We worked on uh, getting rid of the 24-hour call, which was one of the things that the residents felt very strong about because they said it was too hard and too long and very um, uh, and exhausting. Um, so we did, based on that, we were able to do some practical change in the department that were um, suggested by the resident themselves, which is even better because we empower them to affect their own life and their own schedule. Breakthrough Technology, Breakthrough Outcomes. A key study conducted at CHU Limoges Hospital in France demonstrated the value of implementing a hospital-wide, goal-directed therapy protocol for blood and fluid management using the Massimo Rainbow post-coaxymetry platform, showing a 33% reduction in 30-day post-surgical mortality. Visit Massimo.com to learn more. But it's not just residents who are susceptible to burnout. Our next guest highlights a few other things that have recently intensified the strain on the workforce. He also offers an interesting take on one possible way to improve the unfortunate state of things. My name is Dr. Myron Yaster. Um, I retired from the Johns Hopkins University um, Hospital in the Departments of Pediatrics, Anesthesiology, Critical Care Medicine 
in 2016, and I just retired as a professor of anesthesiology at the University of Colorado in Denver. I think there are some very important caveats to this, to say up front, that how my professional life went really is a bit different than what is facing physicians today. I think that we were on the precipice of problems and there were problems, but I think COVID and the effects of COVID pushed us over the cliff. It's, you can almost think of it as like a waterfall. You know, you're sort of cruising along and then you go over the, the edge. And I think COVID is what pushed everybody over the edge. And if I could be even a bit more specific, certain parts of the anesthesia community were affected more than others. And the people who were affected the most were women. And I think it's, it's really crucial to understand the demographic changes that have occurred in anesthesiology really just over the last 15 years. If I look back, I can say that when I graduated from medical school in the 1970s, my class had less than 10% women. And there were virtually no women in anesthesiology. In fact, women were discouraged from going into anesthesiology because private groups didn't want to have women in their practice because they were afraid childcare and things like that would interfere with their work. In 2022, over 50% of all medical school graduates are women. And in anesthesiology, 35% of the business and maybe is maybe moving up on 40% are women. And women, I think, in particular, were devastated by COVID because aside from everything that everybody was facing with COVID in terms of work-life balance, when all is said and done, child care, parent care, all these other things really affected women in a way much more than men. And the, the, the balance between work and, and life necessities was completely out of whack. And it was recognized almost immediately. And this was not only a problem in, say, private practices, it was an equally, it affected people in academic practices as well. Women in academic were really making inroads in academic leadership positions. And now all of a sudden, they were off the, 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 the meritocracy, the um, academic achievement train, and they had to put stuff on hold all the same time that all of their all their work requirements are the same. So so the answer to this is to rethink how we work rather than to force people to go into resilience training or some other bullshit, if I'm allowed to say that here. The amount of, of just nonsense and bullshit that has been heaped on male and female physicians over the past two, three years is just unbelievable. And the electronic health record is really an important issue for everybody in medicine but it was not designed by physicians. It's really a billing system. And it was forced on us with virtually no physician input. And it really changed how we worked. It changed how we think. It changed our, how we interacted with patients. And all of a sudden, the bond between physicians and patients was broken by a system that we had no control over. And all of a sudden, physicians who really work hard at doing what's best for their patients were placed in a terrible situation by administration. It doesn't matter whether you're, again, in private practice or in academic practice. These electronic health records, although the idea behind them is really important, how it was actually 
foisted on us was catastrophic. And it really changed how physicians interacted with each other and with hospitals and the administration that they work for. And this had a, a, a terrible effect on how physicians saw themselves, anesthesiologists saw themselves, and how they related to really hospital administration and their patients. And rather than being put in a position of doing what's right, we were basically screwed. So when you add all of this together, it's, it's often been called not burnout, but moral injury. And that's what I think is a really important concept that we have been screwed. And why should we be, su be surprised by the effect? There's a sort of a, a motto in business administration that businesses or the results you get are what the system is designed to produce. And the system as it currently is set up is designed to really make it much harder for physicians, anesthesiologists to enjoy their work and have that professional pride in what they do that overcomes much of the day-to-day -day sort of aggravation. I think institutionally, if departments don't fix what's fixable, and most of it I think is fixable, we'll see continued erosion of the people that they hire. They won't last long. They'll quit. And then all of a sudden, you've got to close ORs. It's in their institutional best interest to have a happy and committed workforce, not to have a broken, fearful, despairing workforce. About um, 10 or 15 years ago, there was an article in The New Yorker by Atul Gawande that sort of said that, you know, Tiger Woods has a coach. Well, why don't we have coaches? Now, some coaching can be thought of as, you know, how to improve your technical skills. But coaching can also be very valuable, I think, in work-life balance and how to get some of these results that you just asked me about. In the Society for Pediatric Anesthesia, they've done an extraordinary thing that's called WELI, W-E-L-I. I don't remember what it stands for. But WELI is designed to take young women faculty pair them with a coach, not, a, not so much a mentor, but a coach who will be a sounding board and offer advice. And that may be the beginning of how we fix some of this stuff. It doesn't have to be just for academic advancement. It can be, look, if you're not happy working this five-day-a-week, 100-hour work week or 80-hour work week, how do you go about fixing that? And sometimes the solutions are that you have to leave your job and go someplace else. And if a department starts to lose people at a real clip, they're going to start to make changes, especially if they start to lose and have to close ORs. Finally, we're joined by Edmir Hedzik, a consultant anesthesiologist from Belgium, as well as the founder and director of NYSORA, the New York Society of Regional Anesthesia. Dr. Hedzik shares his interesting perspective on physician well-being and work-life balance, having both lived and worked in the United States and Europe. When it comes to uh, the world of anesthesiology, it really depends on where you practice. If you're an academic anesthesiologist in Europe, 
you're pretty much similar to have a similar lifestyle and life as an academic anesthesiologist in the United States. If you are an anesthesiologist in private practice in Europe, which I am, uh, I also have a university affiliation, but I'm primarily I work in a private practice where I built an orthopedic anesthesia service. Uh, you eat what you kill. And you will see the same amount of drive and hard work ethics as you see in the United States. As someone who has worked in academic practices in the United States and in private practice, I actually do not see any difference at all. Uh, currently, I work in a practice in a very high power private practice uh, in, in, a, uh, in an environment where we treat a lot of professionals, uh, athletes. Uh, we have some of the best surgeons actually in Belgium. Uh, I can tell you, everybody is so hard driven to do more cases and work harder that uh, I don't really see any difference whatsoever. If you ask me specifically about the quality of life that is not related to the profession of medicine or anesthesiology, there, there are significant differences, but you only see them if you live long enough in that territory. When I used to date my current wife, I would come for a few days or a week or so. I was not able to see those subtle differences. Everybody talked about the quality of life in Europe, but I didn't understand what they meant. It's only when I lived here for a couple of years that I started uh, to understand. And as I, as I you know, arrived to Belgium to build this practice, I also built a, uh, a commercial research unit. And in that commercial research unit, I hired uh, several research employees. And when we had some FDA-related projects going, I asked them if any one of them wanted to uh, work harder or longer to cover nights or weekends uh, for more money. And the answer is a unanimous no. And uh, this is a mentality that I, coming from America, I did not understand because everybody wants to work more, uh, wants to earn more. You know, people in America, they work two jobs and over time for more. And the, the issue is that in the United States, um, everybody thinks that the taxes are much higher in Europe. And indeed, once you make 60K plus, in, Euros, in Europe, you pay 50% to the government if you're an employee. Uh, if, you, uh, if you own a business, which we do in anesthesiology, then it's, you have different means to save on taxes. But as an employee, it's 50%. In the United States, on paper, that seems, it's much less. It's little less. But in the United States, you pay dearly for education for your kids. Mm -hmm. You know, my son went to Columbia University in New York, and I know that the tuition was $350,000 plus the living costs. You see, yeah. in Europe, that's zero. Uh, the cost of, of very high level, high quality education uh, in, in college at the university level is only maybe 800 bucks a year. And then if you live in Europe, uh, you also don't have to worry about healthcare uh, because you don't have to pay anything for it. It's included already in your salary deductions. So you don't have fears whether you'll be able to pay for your health care. Uh, likewise, at least as of now, the pension is secured. The taxes on the real estate are much lower. The tax in my apartment in New York is 15000 a uh, a year, whereas uh -huh. the tax on my house, which is about four times bigger in Belgium, 
is only a thousand a year. So you can see how people who live in Europe do not have these existential concerns that exist in the United States. And therefore, they want to work less, not more, because that's where that quality of life comes from. As a doctor in, in, in Europe is uh, what really makes my, bumps up my quality of life is when I see patients, I don't see a stress of being able to pay the bills. As a, as a human being, as somebody who wants to really help patients, it's really a good thing to do as opposed to presenting them with the bill as they, as they leave. It's a totally different mentality. That transfers into a certain feeling of a quality of life that exists mm-hmm. in Europe as opposed to Western Europe, at least, takes care of its weak. It's nice to see. Stay tuned for the final episode of Anesthesiology News Presents The Etherist where a variety of experts share their thoughts on how to make the situation better, both at an institutional and an individual level. We hope that their experiences can inspire you.